Welcome to Politics Consider, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, we will be discussing the 49th and current Vice President of the United States, Vice President Kamala Harris. I have a very special guest with me today who is the only reporter that I'm aware of to interview the Vice President in the official residence and shadow her while traveling. Elena Plot Calabro is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers national politics. She previously covered politics and the 2020 election for The New York Times and The New York Times Magazine. She is currently at work on a book about Alabama Governor George Wallace and federal judge Frank Johnson, who ruled against Wallace's segregation, segregationist policies in the 1960s, for Penguin Press. She is a native of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. With me now is Ms. Calabro from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Politics Considered, Ms. Calabro. Hi, thank you for having me, and please feel free to call me Elena. Okay, we'll do it. I know you're busy, Elena, so we'll get right into it. First of all, how did you manage to gain such access to Vice President Harris for your rather extensive interview and have the opportunity to shatter her while traveling? Well, it, the answer is probably disappointingly banal. I just asked um, <laughs> how it always goes with profiles. You really never know um, what a potential subject is going to say. Um, it's it's just such a toss up. And I happened to really luck out that she and her team decided it was a piece that they wanted to participate in. Yeah, I'm just amazed in general how many people were willing to speak with you. Um, you spoke with Secretary Clinton, uh, the former chief of staff, Ron Klain, um, a lot of her friends. So I don't know. I just found that kind of interesting. Do you think the Atlantic, the credentials of the Atlantic help? I do think that's part of it. I will say um, one of the huge upsides to getting um, a subject of a profile to cooperate is that they are then willing to kind of broker contact with people like White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients, right? So when you have the subject herself or himself saying, I'm participating in this, I would like you to speak with this reporter on my behalf, that really, really goes a long way. Um, so just as it is kind of a toss up at times, whether you can get the subject him or herself to participate, if they decide not to, it becomes all the more difficult to try to get people around them to speak on the record. Okay, so you could, can you just describe how Vice President Harris how she was at the beginning and how she evolved in her interactions with you from your first meeting to later in the this interview process? Sure, of course. What I, and I kind of anticipated this from the beginning, having studied her professional trajectory a great deal. Kamala Harris is really a prosecutor at heart. That was really, I think, the foundational step in her career and in terms of the affect we see from her now, the way she approaches problems and devises solutions, which is to say that she's not necessarily somebody who is most comfortable when she's being asked questions. She really prefers to dictate the terms of a conversation, um, just as she might in a courtroom from the days when she was assistant DA, for example, and then DA. And so at first, I found navigating that dynamic a little tricky. Uh, so I note in the piece that in our first two interviews, when we were on the road 
it felt at times that I was kind of tiptoeing around glass and maybe one, you know, change in the air could derail the whole conversation. But as I think we got to know each other and finally, when I was able to sit down with her in her own home in the vice president's official residence, the atmosphere changed quite a lot. And I found her to be a very warm person and at times even maternal. It was one of those reporting projects where over time you really were able to start peeling back the layers of the subject. And in the end, I found that very gratifying. Interesting. So, yeah, we saw that with the questioning of Kavanaugh and and Jeff Sessions, that she definitely likes to be the one asking the questions. And that may explain why it's been a bumpy start with her with these interviews where she's been interviewed. Did you find her wanting to ask you questions? (laughs) But I um, and and to be honest, I found this um, I found this refreshing in a, in a way. Um, she did this with me, but I've also noticed, you know, in televised interviews with other people, she does this as well. She demands that you be incredibly specific in terms of the question you're asking and what it is you're hoping to get out of her. So, you know, a lot of people, I mean, myself included, if I'm, you know, being interviewed, say in a podcast, for instance, <laughs> if I get kind of a vague question, you know, my instinct is just to kind of go with it and, you know, try to try to make it work. Um, Kamala Harris is someone who would say, I don't understand what you're asking me. I need you to be very, very precise in terms of what you're hoping to get out of this exchange right now. And, you know, I, as a journalist who I think we should be framing questions that way, especially when our time with public officials of her caliber is so short, you do want to be as precise as possible. And I found that in some ways, more than anyone I've ever interviewed, she was really, really demanding in that respect. That kind of makes sense with her legal background. Definitely. So, so you wrote about this, and I'm sort of curious, the, the only real defined role for a vice president is to preside over the Senate. So like if there's a tie, they show up. So that creates a lot of uncertainty uh, because there is no defined role. And we've seen different, like Vice President Al Gore had a strong role, others not so much. So how has Vice President Harris navigated this lack of defined role, given that you refer to as task-oriented? Well, I I think this is a great question and I think gets at kind of a common misperception about the vice presidency. And by that, I mean, it is, in fact, second in line to the presidency. Um, But that means nothing in terms of the actual power that vice presidents wield in in our country. Um, So Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, in terms of day to day steering of the ship of this country, has a lot more real Hour than Kamala Harris does. And I found that that was something for, it's this way for a lot of vice presidents, right? You don't get the job if you haven't in some respects been successful and accomplished in your life before. And so a lot of vice presidents, not just Kamala Harris, come into the office and they're sort of hit very quickly with the reality that all the sort of, you know, day-to-day day maneuvering and shot calling that they've become accustomed to in their career in some ways goes out the window once they actually step into that role. Um, so I think it's adjust- an adjustment for any vice president, not just Kamala Harris. But I think over time, as she's gotten a better sense of the actual contours of the job, um, as blurry as they sort of are, she has become more comfortable trying to figure out you know, what influence she actually does have. And so, you know, we can get into this later if you'd like to. But I think um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade was a huge moment for her to sort of fill a vacuum in terms of what role she could actually play for this White House. 
This makes me think that you can't just arrive in Washington from California or anywhere. People have been there a long time. Okay, you're vice president, so what? And I think um, Senator Clinton was very savvy in that regard because when she became a senator, she did not just come in there and say, okay, I'm Clinton and you have to defer to me. What I've read is that she was a workhorse and she earned respect and she kind of knew how to navigate that and she had a lot of respect and she didn't just go in and say, okay, I'm here. Yeah, I would say that um, actually when I spoke to Secretary Clinton for this piece, she told me that what she really identified with um, in Vice President Harris was the fact that, and I too have seen this firsthand having traveled with her, she really values one-on-one conversations with voters um, and actually getting out in the country and interacting with the people who are actually being affected by this administration's policies. Those are not the sexiest stories for the national media, these sort of you know, voter lines and in-depth discussions, but they're the ones that she really values. And something Secretary Clinton told me was that as a senator, that that too is where she preferred to um, kind of spend her capital. And it was also something she said she struggled with people uh, noticing. And so a narrative could become, well, what is she actually doing all day? Um, because you actually, you didn't see her on cable news every night, sort of, you know, trying to deliver the latest soundbite or whatnot. She was actually in her state for Secretary Clinton, New York, of course, for Kamala Harris, in the entire country, um, trying to interface with voters. And I was intrigued by Secretary Clinton saying that, you know, immediately she understood the frustrations the vice president was experiencing in terms of feeling like nobody was actually paying attention to what you were doing. So you you've written about how the vice president has prioritized promoting the president, President Biden and his agenda. And sometimes this has been secondary to promoting herself. Can you talk about that a little bit? Of course. So the vice presidency, of course, I mean, your job is to support the president and his agenda. What's interesting with Kamala Harris that I found is that past vice presidents, it was a bit more immediately clear about how they could carve out kind of their own role and identity in large part because a lot of presidents, Barack Obama being one of them, chose their vice president to kind of be their um, anchor in Washington, so to speak. Um, so Joe Biden was somebody who was a, you know, a creature of Capitol Hill in the way that Barack Obama wasn't. And so it was immediately clear to Barack Obama that he wanted somebody who could, you know, be glad handing with senators and congressmen, congresswomen about the administration's agenda and kind of being the point person in Congress for the White House. Um, That's a role that's been filled by a lot of Kamala Harris's predecessors. Uh, But as I note in the story, Kamala Harris came into office and became vice president to a man who was running his first campaign for the Senate when she was 10 years old. Um, So she was never going to be the the quote unquote anchor to Washington for Joe Biden. That was just never going to be um, what he needed his vice president to do for him. And so as a result, you know, an already kind of nebulous job becomes all the more nebulous for her. Yeah, they kind of flipped the script. A lot of these presidents were governors. They came into D.C., Clinton, Bush, Reagan, Carter. Carter. And then Mm -hmm. they they chose people like Mondale and Dick Cheney and uh, Biden, who'd been around a long time, had these contacts. And so it sounds like what I'm hearing is that this, when they flipped the script, it didn't bode well for her. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think the the major takeaway I found there was that um, and a kind of already inscrutable job that's difficult to navigate just had an added layer to that for her because um, kind of the pattern of her predecessors was never going to fit exactly with her for a variety of reasons, of course, um, but especially given this um, Capitol Hill dynamic. Yes, voters are often irrational actors and they want to sort of feel good about somebody and feel like they could have a beer with somebody, which is all kind of not good voting heuristic. But you wrote about how she's a private person by nature. And do you think that has impacted her ability to connect with people and people to feel connected with her? I do. And I point out that she's never really had a lot of practice before in these sort of jobs where that dynamic that you're discussing, something that feels a bit more atmospheric about a political figure that people tend to um, take to in a way they can't exactly explain, but they just feel some sort of connection to the figure. Her jobs before the vice presidency, you know, she was not in the Senate for a long time at all before she started her own presidential campaign. Before that, of course, she was Attorney General of California a DA, an assistant DA, and so on and so forth, her campaigns for the bulk of her career have been very results oriented. So say the person running for city council, say they're an incumbent, their messaging becomes, here are the precise things I've done for you. And because this is such a kind of localized position, the voters can actually see whether or not this person has made their lives better in a very tangible tangible, kind of measurable way. Um, and I think she always really valued that in her jobs in California. When she was DA, for example, um, her first campaign, her pitch was the person that I'm running against, the incumbent, has an abysmally low conviction rate for felonies. I will raise that. I will kind of get this backlog, this backlog of cases and meet them out with success. And she did that. And so she won her second go around in that office just by saying that, here's what I promised you I would do, and here's exactly what I did. And there was no arguing with it because it was, um, as I said, quite measurable. When you get into national politics, as you know well, those things become a lot fuzzier. It's a lot more difficult to say, here are the very specific ways I've changed your life. You know, you, as a national political figure, you may believe that's true, but there's an, an entirely other party that wants to argue that it's not true and can also pull from, you know, their own statistics and research to um, counter yours. And it just becomes a lot more difficult to convince voters about the efficacy of your record, the further away you get from the ground level. And so she's now in this position where voters, it's not enough for her just to say, here's how my administration has bettered your life or how Joe Biden's administration, excuse me. But those sort of intangibles that you're talking about, this affect-driven politics becomes all the more important. And it's just not something that's natural for her to want to lean into. Yeah, that makes sense. When you're, uh, you mentioned local politician, you can say, here's the new park. I filled eight potholes. You know, exactly. I prosecuted, yes. I put this person away, I prosecuted, you know, we, got picked up on time. <laughs> we see this a lot with President Biden, where, you know, empirically, the economy's doing better. There are a lot of things that are measurably better because of his presidency. There's always cause and effect problems, but it has more to do with how people feel, how it's spinned in cable news. And as you said, it's just a lot more nebulous. So all of that makes sense. Are there other things? I'm just wondering why you think that Vice President Harris has struggled so much to find her voice and role 
when she was prosecuting, interrogating, asking questions, for example, to Justice Kavanaugh, she seemed like that seemed to me like her authentic self or something she was good at, comfortable at, this take charge. So why not? Why didn't they find a role like take charge of the border rather than trying to solve the causes of <laughs> of these impossible tasks of solving um, the problems, the root causes of immigration? I know it's that was a, good, a lot. No, it, it, it's a good question. And I think to answer it, um, you have to really kind of get into the weeds of, you know, Biden in particular. So when he was vice president, the so-called root causes element of immigration policy um, was something that he took on. And for him to ask Kamala Harris to take on that issue as well, he saw that as a great show of respect. He didn't see it as sort of the um, the thankless task he just wanted to pawn off to his vice president, which, you know, by the way, Kamala Harris and a lot of her staff, and in fact, a lot of Joe Biden staff, quite correctly saw that for what it was. It was just sort of a, a task that anyone would be set up to fail in. But he's not conceptualizing it in that way. In some ways, he's seeing it as I'm passing the torch to you. And I wouldn't ask you this if I didn't have a great deal of respect for you because I took on this issue myself. So to me, it was interesting how those dynamics that are very particular to Joe Biden have in some ways made her job harder in terms of getting the kind of agenda that she might be set up to succeed in. And I've heard that people around him don't like to say no to him or argue with him. And, you know, I don't know if that's true, but, you know, it isn't. Maybe it's because it was new in her term. Is it the case where neither she nor these staffers wanted to tell him, hey, this is not a good idea. It's a thankless task and it's not something that is going to work out well. Well, as I as I reported in my story, um, she did, in fact, approach then White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain to say, I don't feel good about taking this on. Um, this is not something that I think kind of aligns well with my own vision for my vice presidency and whatnot. But I, I do think what Kamala Harris understands at the end of the day is that she is there to support the president. So I think it's also important to point out kind of the counterfactual that if she were to be kind of resolute about what she's going to do and what she's not going to do, that in some ways could, uh, I think, jeopardize her political future even more. Because what you don't want as a vice president is to get a lot of West Wing staffers coming to the view that you're only looking out for your own interest and your own political future and your own brand, when in fact, the reason you were tapped for this job was to support the White House or excuse me, I mean, she's in the White House, but the West Wing in particular. Yeah, this sounds kind of like a difficult task. It might it might be easier for her to be president because you oh, have- Oh, it's a terrible, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I well mean, terrible. I think of ones that were so-called successful, however we define that, like, I think like Al Gore. And I think that's because he and Clinton had such a good relationship and they somehow worked out how he could do things in tandem, get credit, not overshadowing the president. And I think this sounds like that's a hard thing to figure out, especially if you don't know each other for years as Gore and uh, Clinton did. Well, I think with Gore in particular, I think he, in the in their, in the Clinton administration quite early on, really even before the transition, it was very clear um, what lane Al Gore would be taking policy-wise. With Kamala Harris, that whole discussion was entirely scrambled because as soon as they come into office, they're doing kind of a administration-wide triage when it comes to COVID. 
that is sort of the all hands on deck, the only thing anyone is focused on. So any of those early conversations you might see in past administrations, um, sort of mapping out, you know, what agenda the vice president will take on really get scuttled for this global pandemic. Um, that is just necessary to deal with, no matter, you know, what the vice president's future and how it may be complicated by that. Yeah, when Gore came in, he didn't have a pandemic. And he was tasked with this defined at uh, this role of sort of reinventing government, privatizing mm -hmm. things, something that was popular on the right, and he could have press conferences. I have pictures of him with the charts showing how he reduced government. So yeah, it's a lot different. So what I'm hearing is that, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you don't agree with some of these writers who say that the West Wing was sort of setting her up for failure. I mean, I think it's hard to answer with a binary yes or no, because as I point out in my piece, I do think that Joe Biden and his administration have failed at times to give her the sort of support that she might otherwise need to succeed in the role. Um, I think a good example actually is Dwight Eisenhower with Richard Nixon. Um, I say that because Eisenhower came into office, um, he was the oldest president at the time, believe it or not. I think he was just <laughs> years old, um, which feels so quaint at this point. Um, but, you know, as, as I know you well know, he had a heart attack within, you know, his first year of taking office. And after that, it became very urgent to President Eisenhower that Americans believe that Richard Nixon, should he need to, would be very capable in the presidency. Dwight Eisenhower saw his role as assuring the American people, my vice president is capable. So God forbid something happened to me, you are in good hands. Um, and that was really kind of the impetus for him to send Nixon onto this 100 plus day tour of East Asia and kind of try to situate him in the role of, you know, the consummate diplomat, somebody who could really take on these international issues, not to mention domestic, um, should he have to step in. And that is not something that Joe Biden has necessarily committed himself to doing for Kamala Harris. And I think that's why the anxiety about her becoming president that you just kind of see discussed in the media that we see reflected in polling becomes all the more compounded by concerns people have about Joe Biden's age. Um, so one thing I point out in my story was that I, I find it almost curious that Joe Biden Instead of, you know, instead of trying to act to Americans as though his age is not an issue, his cognitive abilities are not an issue, and say something to the effect of, listen, I feel great. But again, if God forbid something were to happen to me, this country is in phenomenal hands with Kamala Harris. At no point has his administration really tried to, I think, perpetuate that message in a way that we've seen past presidents do for their vice presidents. I find this so baffling. And I think it's because what I've read, actually, you wrote about this. It seems like the president staff and the president and the vice president don't want to talk about the donkey in the room, you know, his age and the heartbeat away. And if they talked about all of the skill, I mean, I actually think she'd probably be a better president, the vice president. But if they talked about her skill sets and how she can prosecute and how good she is, you've talked about how she is so good with foreign leaders. And, you know, if they talked about all this, their poll, her poll numbers and maybe his would probably be higher. So I don't know. I just find that to be so bizarre. Do you think it is because they don't want emphasis to be on his age? That's the sense I got from people around him that I spoke to for my profile of the vice president. 
the sense I got from my reporting was that it's a tactic to neutralize the issue by acting as though it's not a consideration. Polling, again, reflects that Americans, it is something that there is anxiety in this country about. Um, but I, I never got the sense from aides I spoke to in the West Wing or on the campaign side that this was something they were strategizing on or thinking of how to change their strategy on, I should say. So a lot of people have speculated about how much of this is racism and sexism. And I know it's hard to quantify, but, you know, we know that there is racism because, you know, her first name has been mispronounced on purpose by Trump, by uh, Republicans in Congress. And something that happens a lot is that they use her first name, even when they pronounce it correctly, rather than vice president. I mean, they did this with Speaker Pelosi calling her Nancy. They did this with Secretary Clinton. I mean, I try to be very careful to use women's last names. But so I guess the media does this with all women. Um, but how much of that do you think is a factor and how do you think she's handled it? Well, for one, I think there's no question that it's a factor in perceptions of her in this country. I think early on, and to some extent now, but based on my reporting early on, she could get very caught up in kind of the relentless narrative on Fox News about her, the just relentless attempt to demonize her and sort of make her the true face of the administration, you know, spend any, any amount of time in right-wing media. And um, the message quickly becomes, and we've seen Republican presidential candidates like Nikki Haley talk to this effect on the campaign trail, because of Joe Biden's cognitive decline, as they say, the true leader of this administration is Kamala Harris. And because of her race, because of her gender, I think that right-wing politicians feel that they're going to have a much easier time convincing their base that that is an inherently malevolent fact. If she were having, you know, an incredibly influential voice in the White House, that you should be afraid that it's necessarily radical. Yeah, we saw Ambassador Haley, when she started running, she was running against the vice president. And I thought, is she running to be vice president? And then I realized what's going on there. They just thought that that would resonate and gin people up. So you, we touched on this a little bit. You wrote about how the vice president did not and perhaps still does not have strong connections to members of Congress or Hill staffers. And I was just fascinated that you wrote that when she went up to the Hill, you know, there isn't this rush to meet with her because people don't really think she can affect policy. So what's your sense of why this is? Did Harris address this when you talked to her? Um, has she acknowledged it? Well, I'll, I'll start with the first part of your question. I think the reason it is, is that Pretty early on in this administration, you would have congressional leaders and top congressional staffers sit in on meetings in which Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were both present. Present, And even though nominally at the beginning, there was this idea pushed um, by the administration that Kamala Harris would be sort of a liaison to Capitol Hill for this administration, it became pretty clear in those early meetings that Joe Biden didn't view it that way. You know, even though... Again, ostensibly, she was supposed to be the one taking the reins on certain issues. Um, voting rights would be one example. He's the one really running those meetings and trying to liaise with 
these various members and senators to try to get support for his agenda. And so I, I, I just think, you know, quite reasonably, people who are in those rooms are seeing, okay, who actually has the cash J or who's actually making the calls here um, when it comes to this bill or this issue. Um, and so for that reason, people are going to, you know, reach out to certain contacts in the administration accordingly, and those are not going to exist much in her office. That's interesting. This is breaking news because I haven't really heard before that it was the president who sort of um, had a role in that. So it sounds like even though he was president, he still thought that he would be the liaison because he'd known these people for a long time and he would go over there and he thought he could do it better than her. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I don't think that that's outrageous or controversial at all. Again, he does have incredibly deep relationships with various people on the Hill. And I think actually, um, you know, this week alone, his statement about Mitch McConnell's decision to hang it up after the November election is really testament to that. I mean, you would not, I don't think you would ever see a Barack Obama or a Donald Trump, you know, learn that the like a kind of Senate giant from the opposite party is stepping down and them taking the time to say, you know, I regret to hear this. I respect this person. We've known each other a long time. Um, that's just not something you really see in kind of the tribalism of today. But I think it attests to the fact that he has known a lot of these people of both parties for a very long time. And so to me, it, it, it never seemed strange that he would want to adopt that role for himself um, as president. What I think was the misstep was in, you know, despite the the difference in terms of relationships on Capitol Hill between himself and his vice president, they still early on tried to position her as the one who would be doing that sort of work. Yeah. So it sounds like if he'd gone over there with her and sat down with these people, introduced her, it might have been a little smoother. Um, yeah, I'm just shocked that you don't think Trump would congratulate uh, <laughs> Senator Schumer. If he yeah, was right, like, right. But yeah, your point is well taken, giving all this uh, polarization. So you you wrote about her communication style. And, you know, I'm I'm somebody who sometimes I'm trying to work on this, but sometimes I think out loud. Sometimes that goes with extroversion. Um, but you wrote about how she has these word salads sometimes. And this is not a criticism. Sometimes non-responsive answers. She's in this feedback loop. Can you just talk about that? And why do you think that is? By the end of my reporting, I came to the conclusion that a great deal of this has to do with risk aversion and sort of fear of saying the wrong thing. And I think you see the earliest evidence of that in terms of her national political profile in her own presidential campaign, when she had a really remarkable record as a prosecutor, for example, a record she was proud of as attorney general of California. But people around her, people close to her when she was running for president, you know, were basically the same year of America's quote unquote racial reckoning in the aftermath of the murder of George, George Floyd and whatnot, um, and police brutality, that being sort of the number one topic of discussion day in and day out. You had a lot of people close to her say, you do not need to highlight this aspect of your record. And her response was, but it is my record. It's, you know, it's a huge part of the person that I am. She, I mean, her first book was called Smart on Crime, but I think she got the sense from advisors and others that this was just something she needed to downplay in terms of kind of suppressing what felt natural and authentic to her to want to 
the policies she wanted to highlight, what she wanted to talk about with respect to herself. And I think you've see, seen that carry over into now, which is to say when she's out there, you can tell that she's very, she's just very risk averse. She doesn't want to risk sticking her neck out on something and then having the political winds shift the other way. That makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. So, Elena, how do you foresee Vice President Harris's trajectory evolving through the fall? And how do you think her approval ratings might be impacted? And is she working on something to improve? You mentioned reproductive rights, and that seems to be a good issue for her. Um, so what is what is her plan and how do you see this playing out? Well, I don't I don't think this is especially groundbreaking analysis or anything, but I think her future is entirely dependent on the outcome of the election in November. Um, if she and Joe Biden do, in fact, win a second term, she, of course, becomes um, the sort of built in front runner for the 2028 Democratic nomination. Um, if they don't win, you have a lot more time for other people on the Democratic Party to sort of circle the wagons with donors and whatnot to launch their own primary bid and be very competitive. Um, I think there will be a competitive primary in 2028, regardless of who wins in November on the Democratic side. But I think that it becomes a lot more difficult for her to claim that she's the heir apparent if she and Joe Biden don't win in November. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I should have clarified my question as we talked about earlier. Um, I guess what I was wondering is before that, before November, maybe too late, but right now, in order to improve her poll numbers and help the ticket, because right now it seems like what I'm, you know, the conventional wisdom on cable news is that she might be a drag on the ticket. So, is there anything like is she? Are they cognizant of this? Are they going to do something? What's your sense of that? Well, I think that, um, as we sort of alluded to earlier in our conversation, that the overturning of Roe v. Wade um, was a major opening for her to sort of claim an issue as her own. This, you know, reproductive rights are, I mean, it is a subject that Joe Biden himself is not especially comfortable talking about or embracing um, vocally, I mean. And that is something that she very readily stepped into. And I think that one could very easily argue that the you know so-called red wave that didn't end up crashing in the 2022 midterm elections and in fact the pickup of seats that democrats saw was um directly related um in many respects to the overturning of roe v wade and she i think realized that quite early on i mean i think one thing that's pretty that was pretty impressive about her is that despite the narrative the relentless narrative up until the day of the 2022 midterm elections that the economy was going to determine how people voted. Again, this red wave was inevitable. She, um, and you know, you spend any time in Washington and you realize that, you know, this can be hard to do. She was adamant that whatever the polls were showing, whatever the CNN narrative was, that what voters cared about was the future of women's health. And she knew that because she was actually, again, out there in the country every day. Maybe all the the you know cable news cameras weren't there, but she is in these various states, red states, I should add, states like Texas, doing roundtables with you know regular people, regular women, people who were telling her face to face, this will be determining my vote in November, um, wanting to ensure that abortion protections are codified, that you know somebody in the White House 
is looking out for my bodily autonomy. People were telling her that. And so she remained steadfast that that would really influence a lot of voters' decision-making. And she ended up being correct. And so I think that um, as we go into November, she's continuing to bank on that in some respect. And, you know, just because the 2020 elections went well for them or 2022, excuse me, she didn't just stop talking about it all of a sudden. It wasn't just like a campaign ruse for her. It's something that's remained a consistent part of her like travel, her campaigning in general. And so I think you will see that continue up until November. And I think things like the recent Alabama Supreme Court ruling that um, complicates the future of IVF treatment in the state only add fuel to, uh, you know, the campaign message that she's already putting out there. Yeah, it seems like an advantage of of being outside the Beltway. And she has a long uh, hi- history of not just going out and speaking with women, but she dealt a lot with women victims as a prosecutor. And so I think she had a better, as you said, it seems like she did have a better handle on how women really felt and w- if they would turn out. Yeah, it'll be really interesting, you know, this um, issue saliency in terms of these People have these three or four issues, and it's usually the economy. Will reproductive rights still be an issue? It's just, I have no idea, and I guess we're all going to find out. Immigration, so on and so forth. So I, I'm curious about your book. I know you've been spending a lot of time on it. Um, can you tell me about the book you're working on? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am, as you noted in the intro at the beginning, I'm from Alabama originally, and I, in 2019, became really compelled by the idea of doing a biography of Judge Frank M. Johnson Jr. So I suspect that a lot of listeners, their eyes are might be glazing over at this point, because while everybody knows who George Wallace is, um, very few people know Frank Johnson by name. But a lot of seminal civil rights decisions that we just think of um, popularly, the Alma March going forward, the desegregation of buses in Montgomery, he was the judge that made those rulings. And I became really fascinated by the fact that he and Governor Wallace, when they were both in college and law school at the University of Alabama, were best friends, um, like really, really close to the point that they and one of their other friends were referred to as the three musketeers on campus. Um, So just at a very human level, I became fascinated by the fact that they go from as close as they are to being each other's chief professional antagonist, essentially, through the civil rights era. So I got really excited about the idea of writing a book about the civil rights era in Alabama through the lens of their relationship. That is fascinating. You know, judges had had more power in some sense than the politicians. And a lot of people, you know, trying to get into schools and things that were sort of mercy at these ju- at the mercy of these judges. And so those judges were very pivotal. Yeah. And I, this book is very salient given voter suppression and civil rights issues in the news and all of that. So I wish you well, and you're welcome to come back on this show when, it, when it's published. So I have to ask you, um, you wrote an article just last week for The Atlantic about your experience at CPAC, which is the conservative political action conference. So first of all, how did you get access? Because I read that um, reporters from the Washington Post, the Huffington Post and others were denied credentials. You know, there's this general distrust on the right of the mainstream media. So how did you get access and what was the process like? Well, that's actually news to me. I, I I didn't I didn't know that reporters from the Post and other places had gotten 
denied entry to CPAC. Um, I, again, probably disappointingly banal, but I just applied for credentials. <laughs> um, I will say that I saw a lot of colleagues of mine in the mainstream media at CPAC. So it, it never occurred to me that people might be turned away. But yeah, it was as simple as applying. And then basically for your listeners who haven't been before, which I suspect many haven't, I don't actually know a lot of quote unquote normal non-political enthusiasts who have been to CPAC before. Um, but essentially you go, there's an agenda where you have sort of the main hall where you have people like Steve Bannon and various politicians going to speak. But then you also have what's sort of ongoing, no matter who's speaking or what's going on in the main hall, you have an exhibition hall where you have these various booths of different groups, different companies that come to, you know, either hawk their wares or like woke tears, water bottles, something <laughs> I saw, or just various different groups that identify in some way as conservative. Um, and so the John Birch Society did have a setup in the exhibition hall this year. And I just went up to them and started talking to the people who were staffing the booth about the organization, the process of getting a spot at CPAC. And that's sort of what led into the piece that I wrote. I'll just note that a Rutgers anthropologist, Alexander Hinton, told The Conversation, which is a publication that he was just shocked to the core by what he witnessed. And I don't know, did anything seem outrageous to you? Like, did you see the pinball machine? Oh, the January 6th pinball machine. Yes. Um, so CPAC is interesting. I mean, it, it has always been an, an annual event that really caters to the activist base of the party. Um, so in the past, you would never go to CPAC necessarily thinking it was the perfect representation of what the Republican Party stood for. But in the Trump years, it has in fact hewed a lot closer to that role. I also covered CPAC for the New York Times in 2021. And to me, it was just really clear at that point, um, because Trump had lost the election, there was no sort of effort to sort of change the guard and look forward to new leaders. CPAC very much affirmed for me in 2021 that Donald Trump was the Republican Party. I wrote for the Times about a gold statue of Donald Trump that was on display there, <laughs> um, which, you know, a lot of layers to that. But now you go to CPAC and really understand that this is the heartbeat of the GOP in a way that I think past CPACs didn't perfectly attest to. Um, so seeing things like the January 6th pinball machine, I mean, you know, all the sort of kitsch and priorities that that implies really does, I think, give you an accurate taste of what is motivating this party right now. Okay, so tell us about the John Birch Society, uh, what the organization is, who founded it, and how it got its name. The John Birch Society was founded in 1958 by a retired candy executive um, named Robert Welch. And it was essentially for him the answer to what he thought was an insufficiently pure Republican Party. But more than that, a Republican Party and, you know, party apparatus in general that was not urgent enough about the threat of communism in America. So essentially, he gathered um, a handful of very wealthy businessmen in this country and asked them, will you commit to fighting with me the threat of communism, which he believed had infiltrated the highest ranks of government. He thought, for example, quite sincerely, that President Eisenhower was a Soviet agent. 
um, as was John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, um, essentially the highest ranking officials in American government were pawns of the USSR. And that dictate a lot, dictated a lot of his work. He was very conspiratorial. A lot of, you know, their campaigns would revolve around the fact that, for example, the fluoridation of the public water system um, was an effort by communists to kind of exert mind control over the American population. So really nutty things like that. And you and you see really the the flavor of what the Republican Party has become today under Donald Trump in terms of the conspiracism that envelops it, it seems, at every turn. Um, yeah, yeah. There's not to interrupt, but at the time, conservatives like Bill Buckley, Reagan, others sort of kept these people at bay. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. These conspiracy theories, but now they seem to dovetail with this QAnon and this uh, the COVID. Um, how did that? Did that? Uh, do you think the COVID conspiracies helped the John Birch Society get back into the mainstream of the Republican Party? Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll just say to kind of summarize their trajectory a bit more, as you mentioned, Bill Buckley, the founder of National Review and sort of what I call polite society conservatives at mid-century um, in the 60s decided that they did not want to be tethered to the John Birch Society. By the mid-70s, the John Birch Society, despite, you know, a, really a decade plus of having great fundraising, real influence in politics, um, sort of kind of lost whatever weight it had before. And it kind of became irrelevant. And then suddenly we see in this time, and I think COVID was huge for this, a groundswell of support for the sentiments that the John Birch Society was purveying. For example, when I spoke to a field director of the John Birch Society at CPAC, he said that a number of people came up to him and said, "I, you know, I remember when my grandfather was involved in this organization way back when we all thought he was nuts, but now we think he was right about everything um, or he was really onto something. And so what's interesting to me is that a lot of sort of Republican party base voters may not know the John Perch society by name, especially younger generations, but they are in fact carrying on its legacy in um, the things they believe and subscribe to now. Yeah. And you wrote about this, too, this sort of anti-globalism sort of and isolationism is, is sort of in favor right now, in vogue right now. And that was part of it. But there was also, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was also a racist element to this, because in a previous podcast, I talked about how Paul Weyrich and Jerry Falwell and Richard Givery and all of these uh, people on the new right it's it, people thought it was just about abortion, but it was at first it was about these integrated these Supreme Court cases where schools were integrated and they didn't like some of these um, this sort of racial multiculturalism. So to what extent does that tie in with this new sort of white supremacy and anti CRT, you know, anti uh, talking about racism? How does that tie into this? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because for the John Birch Society, I mean, a huge part of their crusade was trying to tether communism to civil rights activists in the civil rights movement at mid-century. They quite clearly believed that Martin Luther King Jr. and his associates were died in the wool communists and um, very segregationist, very anti-Semitic. And I don't think you have to look 
far in the post 2016 Republican Party to see kind of the remnants of that. Wow. Yes. So, well, it is fascinating. Let me just one more question. Can anybody just walk into CPAC? Yes. Um, I mean, you have to go online and purchase a ticket, but yeah, pretty much anyone can go. Well, Elena, thank you. Thank you so much. I know you're very busy. Good luck with the book. And I really appreciate having you on and you have an open invitation. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to make this work. I really appreciate the invitation. That wraps up our show. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.